What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. On today's podcast, we have a man that needs no introduction. If you don't know about him, uh, this is the best introduction you can ever have, uh, Daryl Belfry. He's a man that questions all the assumptions, asks why, and really has changed the outcome of how the game has been played, uh, even through the clients, but just in the research that he's done that has led into the NHL. It's, it's amazing. He started as a youth coach and went from there. Uh, this, was, this was my favorite. I don't know about you, Dan. Daryl's a... a I'm a disciple of Daryl, I'll say. Yeah, so am I. I've known Daryl now for going on five years. He's really shaped the way I see the game, and we kind of got into that a little bit later on in the podcast. Um, super influential, and I think it's, it's good that he's, you know, finally on the forefront of hockey. For years, he was kind of like this niche person behind the scenes that if you knew, you knew, but a lot of people didn't. And I'm so happy to see him getting the recognition that, he deserves. Um, and, and while we're talking about it, he's the author of the most recent book, Belfry Hockey Strategies to Teach the World's Best Athletes. You can get it anywhere books are sold. We both have read it. Uh, highly recommended for anyone. It's not just a hockey book. It's not just a hockey coaching book. It's so much more than that. And, you know, every time I hear Daryl give a podcast interview with somebody, I learn something new. So going into this podcast, I was a little... I don't know if apprehensive is the right word, but I knew that we had to come ready with new material because, you know, he's done kind of the media rounds recently and we wanted to keep it fresh. And every time he talks, I learn something new and, and we hope, I hope that you, the listener take something away from this one as well. Absolutely. Make sure to get his book. I know I've tweeted about it a ton. Um, I've recommended this to many coaches. I've gifted a few copies away myself. Definitely go get it. It is the best book I've read in the past. 10 years. It's absolutely influential, even just for teaching and uh, any kind of mentorship, whatever you're going to get into. And I, I truly appreciated his story of right at the end of, of being a hockey dad and how that worked out and how he went about it. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, that was awesome. Without further ado, our interview with Daryl Belfry. All right. Welcome, Daryl, to the podcast. Really appreciate you taking some time to come on with us. Ah, my pleasure to be here, fellas. Awesome. So I want to start with your mind. It's, it's something that's always questioning the assumptions and asking why and making sure that we're not just doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, what are the parts of the game that are fascinating to you right now? And, and where do you feel there's some inefficiencies out there? Uh, the part of the game that fascinates me is, is uh, what we can teach offensively. And I, I feel like that we're just scratching the surface in a lot of ways. I, I've, I see a lot of, I mean, it's, I mean, your question is two parts, but it's really the same answer uh, for both of them because uh, off 
is also the thing that I feel like there's a lot of inefficiencies in, in how we teach offense. And I think that there's, like I said, I think that we're just now acknowledging that the special offensive players, we can influence the way in which they think and the different things that they are considering and the options in which they want to pursue. And we can get really collaborating with those types of minds and then what we learn from those types of minds, we can actually teach and come up with much more of a progression of understanding for everyone else at, at whatever level that they're at. And I think that for the longest time, we've just assumed that the great players, they are like born with offensive talent. And if you don't show it early on, you're probably not one of those kids. And so therefore, you know, there's no sense talking to you too much about it because we can't influence it. I think we're, I think we're past that now, which is exciting, but all that means is that that's, we're at the beginning in my mind. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense to me. What do you think is easier to teach or who do you think is easier to teach coaches or players? Um, well, they both have their own restrictions because, uh, whether it's a coach or a player, you have biases. And so, you know, a coach has a certain way, uh, that they like to see the game played uh, and players have, uh, played a kind of one or two positions that they're fluent in and that creates a bias. So those biases can be challenging to overcome, uh, because, you know, like it creates a mental restriction. And so then the, the real answer is the person or the group that is most amendable to wanting to learn more. And so, um, you know, you see different factions of both groups, whether it be coaches that are uh, coaches are ever pursuing new ideas and looking for different stuff. Then you have another faction that's like, you know what, like this is the way the game's always been played is kind of one puck. The nets are in the same spot. Like, I don't know why you're complicating this. There's, there's that idea as well. And then with players, you get the same thing. You get a certain faction of kids that are like, show me more, show me more, show me more, like whatever you can show me I'm in on. And then you get other kids that are like a little bit more like, you know what, like I kind of like the way that I play and I feel very comfortable and I I don't really want to be, I don't want to be considering other things. So I think it's, less about the coach or the player and more about the factions inside of that grouping that are, you know, some of them are really progressive and others are very conservative and it's just, just the way it is. Going further on that. I've got a few kids that are just exactly what you said. Some just constantly asking questions and they seem to grow a lot faster and, and throughout the year have gone a lot further in the development and then others that, they're good players, but they're just not asking the questions. I don't have a curiosity. I'm just waiting. Um, is there ways that you approach that of kids that are maybe a little more hesitant or maybe they're just not naturally curious? Uh, yeah, I think you can do a lot with clips. So you could send it, you could sit a kid down on it using whether it's your phone or your iPad and you say, Hey, I saw this and I thought it would be perfect for you. I think that this type of play is exactly the type of thing that I could see you doing And I don't know that you've ever considered it before. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on it. Where, like, what parts of it do you like? What parts of it do you not like? And then you engage in a discussion. Um, And inside that discussion, you're hoping to pique more curiosity. 
to say, and then, and then provide opportunity and practices for them to utilize it. So you could say, you know, I, I could see you using whatever this skill is. And, you know, in practice, we're going to do this drill on the third or fourth drill. Like that's an area that I'd love to see you mess around with it. Like it doesn't have to be this. It could be any expression of it. And then you, what you want is him to try it and come over to you and get some kind of reaction from you. Like, Hey, did you see that coach? I tried it. You know, I like this part. I don't like it. And then that's what happens. A lot of times I think with kids curiosity, one of the biggest things is it's up to you, the coach, you, you need to peak that. And if you find the kids are hesitant or they're not naturally inclined to be curious or asking a lot of questions, then you pose the question for them. And then in that you create the dialogue, more questions come about. Next thing you know, you know, you have a kid that's very comfortable and then you might, you might rue the day that you opened up that can of worms. Cause all of a sudden now he's coming to you all the time. So it's just an idea of trying uh, to to find those kids and then figure out what peaks them. And then it might not be that for like I'm giving you one example. You go to them with a clip and that clip doesn't work. That might just be that you get picked the wrong clip. Doesn't necessarily mean that that didn't wasn't what it, what inspired them or 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 isn't a, isn't a way to get to them. I think clips, personalized clips to players can really do something. The other thing that you could do is you could use his own clips. Like sometimes it's not even like uh, NHL clips that you're using, although that's really effective at times. Um, where you might also get them is in his own clips, where you pull a clip of his and say, hey, like this, this, uh, this play you did was really interesting to me. Can you walk me through it? And then he walks you through it. You say, you know, like uh, in my mind, I was thinking you were going to go this way. And, and then him like, no, no, I wanted to go this way. Oh, why? And then now again, it's a dialogue. You start asking questions and then that kind of gets it going. Daryl, the co-teaching aspect of your book was, I thought maybe my biggest takeaway. I found it just fascinating. And I'll tell anybody who listens to me that uh, I was down at the 88 summit last year to probably to a fault, you know, like I'm, I'm annoying about it. I'm curious if, if, you know, if that happens again in the future, what could possibly happen for it to be better than it was last time, both at the men's or the women's either or? Yeah. I mean, like first you should be very proud of being there. That was a, could be like once in a lifetime event yeah, and you absolutely. happen to be there live. Fly on pretty, the wall. I'll never, I'll, I'll always remember it for sure. It's pretty cool for you to have been there and, and experience that. Cause like I said, it, it could be a once in a lifetime thing. Like for me, how do you make things like that better? I think is you get different players who have an expectation that this is going to happen and you do a better, I do a better job of finding the right clips that are going to stimulate better discussion. So part of it falls on me. Part of it is getting different players to come to always you know, create a different flavor for it. And then I, I also think that um, providing more specific opportunity in the next day for implicit um, uh, collaboration. So one of the things that we did try to do was have one or two drills the next day that provided a, a kind of a launching pad, but I didn't think it was as effective as perhaps it could be. So I think once you have those, that type of discussion and you see where the discussion is going, you see which is resonating with the group, then I think it's good. It's important for me then to the next day 
to have a series of opportunities for them to then naturally start exploring it to create more of an on ice collaboration, which we were able to get um, in parts, which I was really happy with it. Like coming out of it, I, I thought it was great. There was some really interesting discussion between players that I think was captivating. I think I could do a better job of that. And going forward, that'll be, that would be something that I, I would like to do. I, I also think, um, another idea would be to approach the players beforehand and ask them what clips they might be interested in. Like, as you know, like they had no idea what was coming up on the screen. Like I, it was totally blind and I never showed them what they were going to be looking at. They just looked at it, watched it one time through, and then they were commenting on it. Now they have recall and they, you know, they understand details beyond the scope of real understanding between all of us. But still, like maybe asking them, like, was there a play this year that really intrigued you? Thought you were thought it was interesting that you would like to talk about. I think that would be super cool. That's really neat. And, and I would say the meme that uh, most reminds me of that would be when you just kind of take yourself out of the picture and getting to the point. Even in your book, you mentioned it about how you went from kind of leading the group by example to more being introspective and allowing them to find those opportunities. Was that brought on by a frustration of yours or just you thought it was a better way of doing things? Oh, with players of that level, it's, it's important that you provide those opportunities because you're going to learn something, right? So I, I view those opportunities as as much learning for me as it is for them. And so I'm looking actively searching for apparatuses or opportunities that are going to give me the most bang for my opportunity there. So like I said, we don't know, like here this year wasn't promised. You know, we were assuming we were going to go every year and now all of a sudden this year wasn't promised. Who knows now after having not done it for a year, when we try to do it again, like, where's that going to be? Like that could be the last time that we do something, something like that. So because it's not promised, you got to try to take advantage of it all the time. The, the frustration for me, if it was anything like where all that stuff is born is, is more of the, like as much as you want to assume that because you work with these players that you have a level of understanding, the truth is you don't, you don't understand, you don't, you only understand what they allow you to understand and what they tell you and what they confide in you. And so the, the deeper that relationship can get, the more uh, honest the discussions are, the more they, they bring out uh, a lot of this genius that you would not necessarily know. You can't, you can't understand it by just watching you need them to exchange with you. And so the more I can create that, the better. And some of the players I don't know very well. So you got to try to get right, you know, a real strong relationship with them right off the bat. I think that's really important. Um, and so trying to navigate that to, to build out the best of what you can get out of it. Cause it's only, like I said, it's this year wasn't promised and who knows what happens after this. So they're actively searching for these types of details. Um, is there any details that stuck out to you that you're like, wow, this really blew my mind. And maybe what are some ways that players can utilize each other better, use teammates, learn from each other and, and bring out that collaboration. So they make each other better. Yeah, they, they are actively looking to try to get the most they can from their experience with, with each other. They they're fans of each other. That's the interesting part. They watch actively watch each other when they're playing. Like they'll, they'll talk about 
you know, certain players about, you know, things that they saw or see in their game or admire in their game. Like they're actively doing their own research on all the players in the league uh, that they, that are interesting to them. Uh, so they already have a really good functional understanding. And so then they start like asking questions that they have on their mind about that player. Like, Hey, like I noticed this or that. One of the things I thought that was really interesting was Kaner was almost infatuated with Barzell. Like he, he just, he cannot believe Barzell's feet and how he uses his feet to be able to create so much. And he can, his feet take him into areas of the ice that Kaner has never really been able to find his way into. Like, it's like, how does this guy get into that space or how does he use his feet? And so in Kaner's mind, he was like, you know, there's, I'm not going to be able to skate like that, but there's pieces of that skating that I think are very interesting that I could see myself looking to try to adopt. And so then he starts asking that of different ways of like, where are you on your blade? Like, how does that feel? Or where, how do you, how do you get into that movement? And then once he's in the movement, he might find a different path, which is, that's the fascinating part is, is like, you think that they're just stealing it verbatim. Like, Oh, I see that skill. I want that skill. I'm just going to take it. Well, that's what you do when you're 10, you go on your YouTube or you, you know, you see Instagram and you see some crazy move and you go out in your driveway and you practice a billion times and then you do it exactly the way it was done. That's not how these guys operate. They, they get into it. They understand uh, the dynamics of it. And then once they're in it, it, they allow it to kind of take them where it's going to go. So in Kaner's situation, he's going to get into some of these movements with the skating, and then he's going to feel different things that are going to feel more fluid for him. And he's going to continue to go down that path for them. It's so much feel that's really imp- the fluidity of feeling the movement is really what's important. I want to pivot a bit and talk about hockey IQ, hockey sense. I think that you, made a really great point on uh, the hockey think tank podcast about thinking about hockey sense and transition terms. And I think that you've also made a point before that you can ask 10 different people for a definition and you'll get 10 different responses on hockey IQ, hockey sense. What do you think generally speaking as a community, as a hockey community, we can do to make, make the terms more clear, have a little bit more clarity, or is it just like a, an instance where we need to have separate definitions for separate terms at this point? So the way I view hockey sense is that that would be, that would fall under the category like skating. So it's like skating is a category. Now, how mm-hmm. many skills do you have as part of skating? Dozens. Hundreds. Yeah. It's hundreds, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, hockey sense, I think is very similar. So when we say hockey sense, the reason why I say like, well, you could talk to 10 different people and 10 different, you get 10 different answers on hockey sense. And that's not to say that, any of those 10 people are incorrect, right? They're not. It's that there's many different ways in which hockey sense is expressed. And I don't think that we talk about it that way. Are we, you know, we have hockey sense, we have hockey IQ, we have all these different ways of trying to, trying to say the same thing. What we don't do is we don't talk about different layers of hockey sense and how players read the game. That's what we don't talk about. So when I say, you know, reading the game in transition or being effective in transition, that is, an ex- in my mind, an elite expression of hockey sense. But that's just one. 
I'm not saying that, oh, if you just understand hockey sense in that, in that term, then that's what it is. Like that's the new hockey sense. That's not it. That's just one part of it. I just think that's an elite. If a kid can show an, an ability to read the game in transition and excel in transition, that's an elite expression of hockey sense. Now he may not have an excellent feel in small space for pressure. That's another set hockey sense feel. That's a hockey IQ thing. The ability to feel pressure, to roll off checks smoothly, to be able to go with contact, to be able to preserve space on the back wall, to be able to keep your feet moving. The utilization of smaller spaces is a, a, an elite level of hockey sense. However, that's not related to transition. The pucks on the guy's stick the whole time. That's not that's not transition. That's not transition. But it's still hockey sense. You you have another kid, a, a defenseman who's uh, the net front D, who scopes out based on what he reads in the way the play is going in the defensive zone. He all of a sudden scopes out to the hash marks. And he's the guy that, you know, deflects a pass that goes to a seam. That's hockey sense too. It's a defensive read of passing lanes. And maybe he baited the puck there. Maybe he, you know, maybe he put his stick on one side of his body to, to uh, entice the passer to believe that the, there was a passing lane on that side. And then when the guy tried to pass it there, he, he got his stick on it. And that's what led to the turnover. Like, Again, like it's, it's like, I view it like it's like a category. It's hockey sense is a category. It's like skating. It's, it's, there's lots of layers to it. What we don't do is we don't hear anybody talking about the layers. We just say hockey sense or hockey IQ, like this great big umbrella. But if I said to you, oh, the guy's a great skater. Like, okay. Like where, like uh, (laughs) what, what part of his skating is great? Like there's, there's literally hundreds of ways he could be a great skater. You need to be more specific, but we don't say that about hockey sense. We don't say, okay, yeah, I get it. But like, what part of it is he really good at? And this is where I think some kids get too much credit for hockey sense and other kids don't get enough. Because we haven't really taken the time to really filter through the layers. Like we do hockey, like we do skating. It's even though to me, they're the same. At the youth level, keeping on the same topic then, when you're talking about the achievement gap and having kids, let's just use 14 and under, that's the age I coach primarily, you'll have kids who are just, there's, they're better. There's just a gap at this point. You know, when is it appropriate to, at what age, I guess, would you say it's like most appropriate to start talking about, you know, like translatable skills and getting away from plays that like you might be able to take advantage of players um, based on your your raw skills, but you know, hockey sense isn't gonna like someone else is gonna be able to stop you at the next level because of a, a very easy defensive maneuver to like prevent you from doing that. The or I personally don't like placeholder skills. I, right. I'm not a big fan of placeholder skills. I think it fools the athlete into believing that they're better than what they are. It's difficult because you know grandma's paying them 20 bucks a goal. And so this is the way they score. And, it, and, you know, at that level, it's highly successful. So right. it's very difficult to move a kid off a placeholder skill if it's successful to them. What I would like to see is I'd like to see kids um, be moved off of those placeholder skills in anticipation of the year before. So one of the best phrases I, I think I, I try to use 
is the second you make the team. So as soon as, as soon as you say, Daryl, you've made my 14 and under team. So let's call that April or May, right? In the spring. As of that day, it's no longer about that team necessarily. It is about that team. You're trying to contribute to this winning and scoring and, you know, being a good teammate. But for you individually, the develop, your development is no longer about that team. It's about the next team. And it's about what you're, what you're building inside of this team environment to be able to prepare you to be able to play. Cause you want to be, you want to be a 16 and under player while you're leaving 14 and under. You don't want to be a 14 and under player arriving at a 16 and under place. You want to have the skills to be there before you get there. So part of that is that transition. So like you move through the season, the start of the season, you know, you're, you're doing all the skills or that, that got you to make the team in the first place. And then after Christmas or as this time comes and you start pushing towards the end of the year, you got to start thinking about like, what's the next level look like? I'm going to need to be faster. I'm going to need to be more, I'm going to need to be able to protect the puck differently. I'm going to like, there's different contact situations that are going to happen. There's different reads that I'm going to need to be able to focus on. So I believe that like, again, it's like from a development perspective, you want to be whatever the next team is. So if it's 16 and under and I'm a 14 and under, and that's my next team is 16 and under. Well, then I need to be a 16 and under player before I get there. Not after I get there, then try to grow into it. It, it really doesn't work well that way. So what are some major deficiencies that you see in youth players or just common things that maybe a lot of parents, uh, majority of the coaches that are trying their hardest, but you know, they got day jobs or they're coaching their kids. What are some of those examples of placeholder skills that they can be aware of and hopefully wane a lot of their players off of? The number one placeholder skill that is most prohibiting to acquiring elite level skill is making plays on two feet. You want to be a hockey at the elite level and its expression of elite level skill is usually done one foot at a time. You're moving from one foot to the other. You're transferring your weight from one foot to the other and back. And you're constantly doing that in all the skills, even a turn. So when you teach a two foot turn to a 10 year old, Oftentimes that's what it is. It's a two foot turn and the weight is evenly distributed, maybe 60, 40 on the front foot. If you really know what you're doing. Now you put yourself in these situations where you're, you're, you know, your weight is turning on the foot, the problem, the, but if, but an elite level turner starts on the outside foot, their weight starts on the outside foot. They transfer their weight to the inside foot inside the middle of that turn. They're never really on two feet. And then the other foot, the, the outside foot comes off the ice that's elite level skating and is being on one foot or the other, the majority of the time. And once you get planted on both feet, you have to move to move. And once you have to move to move, you're no longer elite into, or you can't stack other things on top of that. So I would say that the num and this is every, anything like you t- want to teach a kid to shoot. 
and you know he has to improve his shot. Well, if you don't improve his shot through his feet, his shot's never going to translate because he's going to have to stop his feet in order to shoot. And we've all seen this kid. He gets the puck. As soon as he gets a puck, he's ready to shoot. He stops, plants both feet, and now he uses some kind of a twisting rotation motion with his upper body, and that's how he shoots the puck. That's three quarters of everybody that shoots pucks, if not more. The people that really shoot well are shooting from one. There's a transfer of weight from one foot to the other, a legit transfer of weight from one foot to the other. And it's coordinated and it's got timing and it's got a chain of movement that occurs. That's, that's elite level skill. And, and, and so the other one that I think is an important one is that if all learning is brain learning, all skill is rooted in movement and movement is typically skating. So, you know, a high, high percentage, it's not a hundred percent, but it's not lower than 75% of skill is skating skill. So you're always trying to improve your skating and you have to be mindful that that's really what's going to be stackable is these skating things. But yet skating in general, as it's taught is not always taught in these dynamic ways that you allows you to stack skill on top of it. So I I think that there's a real need uh, to move kids through the process of learning how to build a platform for which elite skills can be stacked on top of them. Some of them just don't have that. And so that's, I think as a coach, that might be your best thing is to really encourage people to be on one foot or the other in all expressions of skill. So if I'm catching a pass, my weight is on my inside foot. I catch the pass. It goes to my outside foot. And I, in, inside the pass, I transfer from one foot to the other. That, that's a, a simple example of, of the way that works for me. And I think that that's a big deal. And it's one of those things that's not, not talked about enough. That's awesome. That is truly amazing. Um, and you, you've actually had a human experiment in your house, it seems like, with your daughter. How have you kind of moved her through that? of figuring out these skills and maybe some things that you didn't realize you learned until after the fact um, with her. Cause I know she's a pretty serious hockey player. Yeah, she loves hockey and uh, she is, I, I refer to her as a science project cause she very much is. I try a lot of different things out on her first, just to see how she responds to it. Uh, she's got some pretty good athleticism, which allows me to, feel like I can get an honest response as to what she's going to be, what she's going to be doing. So that's fun. Um, what I've learned is she's way more capable and has way more capacity than I had given her credit for. And she never ceases to amaze me. And I get frustrated in myself that I've undersold her abilities and that I should have challenged her more. It's always my regrets as it relates to her and her development are always that I was too conservative. Now you think about that as me, who is not conservative at all in sense of pushing the envelope and, and she is a science project, which I'm trying different things out all the time. I still believe that I haven't challenged her enough in certain things. I, uh, and, and that I think is, is an important aspect that I should be, I should know better. And it frustrates me every time, but She's way more capable. She has an ability to learn, which, um, which I fostered early on. Like I knew a lot about learning and, and I wanted her to learn a certain way. And so I've really done a great job, I think, of, of 
creating that platform so she can learn quickly. Um, but I, I, in going forward with her, I have to do a better job of setting the goalpost much further. I don't set the goal. We, we achieve goals too quickly. We don't have enough long-term, like this is going to be a big challenge. I don't set the goalpost far enough and I don't know why. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just something that I I've always battled with her. That's really interesting. Um, one of the big asks, uh, you had for the community, the hockey community and your book that resonated with me for sure was the, uh, self-research coaches need to do more research. Is there any other, maybe even larger ask you have of the hockey community as like a go forward directive, or would you say that's like the one, if you had to pick one that you would ask? Yeah. I mean, like, I just think for me, I can only speak to my own experience and, the more that I've delved into my own research, the deeper the level of understanding that I had on the subject made it much easier for me to make major gains in whatever it was that I was focused on. Any time in which I accepted someone else's research, it, I just didn't understand it to the to the to, to the nth detail. I, I could understand the like I could understand the the concepts I could understand a lot of the, a lot of the nuances, but I didn't understand like the little details that really matter. And the little details that matter are the times in which you engage in a research project for a certain reason you engage, you get going your 10, 15 games into this research project. And then you see something that you realize is an important piece that you should have included. So now you have to go all the way back. And you got to go find, go find these instances in the 10 games that you had just done. That's gold. It's the going back through it. Then all of a sudden, what do you think happens at the three game mark, four game mark? Well, you see something else. Then you see something else. You see next thing you know, your research project has just mushroomed out to this. Now what you were originally trying to solve one problem. Now you've got 14 questions that you've had all through that's a level of understanding that's going to make you so much better than just accepting someone else's research. And to be honest with you, how do you, how can you trust that that research is what it is? Like I tell my own daughter all the time, like you should question what you read. Like there's a reason why they ask you to get multiple sources on a particular paper that you're writing. They want, they don't want you just to accept one person's, uh, idea. So we should do that in hockey, but we don't. We tend to one person publishes something and we go, okay, that's it. All right. That's good. Now we're good. I read it. Now I'm going to do just that. So I was very, I was very careful in my book, not to be over specific about this is our way to do it. Uh, because the truth is six months from now, it's probable I'm going to change that in some way. And it took six months to get it from when I finished writing it to published. So in that six months, if I give you something, well, it could be obsolete by then. And I, and so that's why I wanted to just more challenge the hockey community to say, let's get involved in detailing your own projects because the learning that you can get. And listen, like I understand you guys, everybody has jobs and they have a family, they got wife, they got kids. But if you really care about it, you'll find time. I mean, there's lots of people that'll find time and they, they get involved and maybe it's four or five of you 
that get on and you have a Google Doc that you're all sharing and you're going back. So now it's not just your research. There's four or five of you on this research project. You have a Google Doc that, you know, once you make a change, it every, changes for everybody. You know, you, everyone's got a different color that they're adding to. I mean, there's simple ways for us to do really good research. And I, I just think that we should be more because the game is evolving so much. And in youth hockey, we haven't even delved into half the stuff because most of the good research that occurs, it's all done at the NHL level. We don't even know what's going on at the youth level. I mean, sometimes a, a governing body will publish some, some stuff, but it's not really like, uh, it's not something that is as actionable as it would be if you did it yourself or your group or community built a group project. Um, I just think we need to do more of that. And I think the game will be better served and the players will be better served if we have more experts on us on whatever subject that they were studying. So you're constantly looking at yourself and that's what I get out of that is you're constantly questioning, why am I doing this? And even like researching your own research is what it sounds like, or making sure that that's the same result multiple ways and, and not just doing one thing and really logging the hours um, doing your own research I guess I'm kind of curious on, even with your book, since you wrote that, what are some areas that you're even questioning that are currently already on written page of, and eh, maybe I don't believe it as much as I did, or there's better ways. Um, I think that like the, the book itself is, is a lot about the teaching techniques of it all. So that part, I mean, it's, it's evolving, I suppose, but it's not as much as the actual hockey, like hockey for me, there's full changes, philosophical changes that occur on a regular basis. And there's nothing that's not on the table. If I can find a different way to do something that's just a little bit better than the way I've been doing it for 25 years, I will change it in an instant. I just feel like I need to be the best at best practices and I cannot be, that's where I want to be elite. I want to be elite at best practices. So in order, in order to be elite at best practices, that means I have to be under self-evaluation all of the time because that's what's going to give me my edge. That's what's going to do it. If, if I say, well, this is how I've taught it, and that's the only way to do it, well, then I don't, I'm going to lose a competitive advantage because for sure, the second I do that, you guys are going to come up with a different way that's more effective. And if it's more effective than the way I do it, then all the people should really be going to you. The way I keep an edge and the reason why I have players that are with me for long, long, long time is because every year I'm coming to them with different things and different ways and say, Hey, uh, last year, I really believe this, but through my research, I feel like I got a better way. I can get this faster to you. That's, that there's power in that. And there's not a lot of power in being stuck. If you're stuck, you're stuck. So I don't love that. I, I'm constantly evaluating everything is on the table. And if there's something, and it, it's not even like, you know, reading or watching someone else doing it. it's all through uh, most of my learning comes from self-discovery. It's trying different things. It's like, Hmm, this is an idea. And it's based on something like, it's not just random. It's there's, there's logic to it, but you know, if I, what if I tried it this way or what if, or this player, he does it, he has these assets. So maybe I need a different approach. Now I learn a different approach. I said, wait a minute, that could be used for all these players. 
it's the self-discovery and constantly analyzing and reading the player and what they're able to transfer in, in their games quickly or what resonates with them could be wording, could be phrasing, could be anything. Uh, those things, if, if you're not in, in, in constantly evaluating your best practices, it won't be long before everyone else has a better practice than you. I know I don't speak for myself when I say that when I was reading your book, I heard you speaking to me. Like I know that I've heard you say that to other people or other yeah. people said it to you rather. Um, and honestly, like when I watch games now, even youth games, NHL games, whatever, I like see or hear you saying something about the play. I'm curious when you're watching a game, whether it's your daughter's an NHL game, whatever, like what, what is going through your head? Like what, talk me through like a play, like what is happening in your head while you're watching it? Cause I can't even watch a game for like, quote unquote, like enjoyment anymore. I mean, not to say that I don't enjoy it. Cause of course I do, but like you're watching it through a completely different lens. So I'm just curious, like, I know it's probably hard and abstract to explain, but like, how do you even, how, how can you explain what's going on? Um, well, I, I evaluate when I watch a game, I'm, I'm looking at a couple of different things. Like, Largely, I, I like to look at what are alternate um, I, I alternate options that could have been available. So I, I like to view the game a little bit more in like hypothetical. So like if I'm going through clips of a player, um, I'll look at it and then I'd say, okay, like this is their way of expressing the skill. Like how else might they have been able to do it? Like what? And then back it up a step and say like, what, how did they get into it? How did they come out of it? So I, I tend to ask a lot of questions about it, but I'm, I'm really looking for different options. Um, so I don't watch a game necessarily for the enjoyment of watching the game. Like, like I've poisoned you to view it the same way. Thank I, you. I, I am looking for something like anything, something to pop, so an idea or something. Uh, there was a time and I go through tangents too. like all there was a, a, a time about three or four years ago. All I was watching was shapes. So I would watch the game in shapes and I would look for, you know, triangles and squares and diamonds and, you know, different types of shapes and how they how those shapes move and how they interact with each other. And like, what if we watch three guys? Oh, what if we watch the fourth guy? Where's the fourth guy go? Okay, well now it's a square, but it's really two triangles. What if we split it this way? What if we split it that way? Uh, what if the guy moved this way? What if he moved that way? How would that all look like? It's a lot of questions, right? And in doing that, you start to see patterns, right? So, you know, I had this whole thing, um, Adam Nicholas started talking to me about space. And uh, he's like, you know, space is, is a big deal and utilization of space. And so then I went into, into a whole stretch of time where all I saw was open space. And so now I'm just watching the game and I'm just looking for, oh, there's space over there. I wonder if they're going to use that space. Where is that real estate that goes unutilized? So, and then, and then I went through a whole stretch where I felt like I didn't know enough about skating and movement. So now I'm watching every player from a movement perspective. So uh, a lot of times it's, it's dependent on what tangent I'm on at that particular time. And then the tangent is then, you know, riddled with a thousand questions that come up and uh, the questions, what I like about viewing it like that is a lot of times the answer 
So a question leads to a question, which leads to another question, which leads to another question. You haven't had an answer yet. Well, that's okay because the answer isn't until you get to like the ninth or 10th question. That's where the answer is hidden. Where we get frustrated, and I used to make this mistake all the time when I was watching uh, players or watching games or asking questions myself, is I would ask a question and I wanted to answer that question. And so then I get all bogged down trying to answer that question and that the answer is not in there. I need more information. And the, the, so I go to the next question. And that question leads to another question. Next thing you know, I have 14 questions that I'm ans- asking and each one of them kind of adds a little piece to the puzzle. Next thing you know, I'm sitting there and I go, okay, now I see what this is. If I, and I've done this before, I've, I've wrote, wrote out all the questions as though they were puzzle pieces and put them on a table. And then I started to, okay, this, this question is related to this one. And then that one would be a next step for sure on that one. And then this one would be a next step. Oh, so now I got this like yellow brick road that's leading me to the answer. And the answer is down the path. And that's what happens in my mind. And I, I've stopped feeling the need to answer every individual question because oftentimes that's not where the answer is. That's all, the question serves only to lead you to the next question. It has really no, you're, you're not meant to solve that one. Where you're trying to go is to get to a point where you have multiple questions that now you're going, Aha, now I have more information, even though you have no answers. All you still have is just questions, but you have more answers that, or you have all these questions that lead you to the actual answer. Then you're like, okay, that's it. Then that answer creates like a, almost like a sticking point to which all the other questions can come on. And then you start to answer a lot of the questions and it kind of cascades itself back down in the reverse effect. You think your answer question, you go up another level of stairs. And then you answer that question and it moves you up. I don't look at it like that. I look at it like it's all these questions are all around. And then it, you, you kind of cluster them into one answer. And then from there, it cascades back down as though it's like a mountain. And it, it starts to lend itself to a lot more of the answers. I, I hope that makes sense. But uh, that's, no, that's, that's awesome. what it is. That's fascinating. That- have you ever I think had a question that have has like not led to another question or like is just hanging out there never. isolated? Never. No, no, never. It's always leads to another question because I mean, you can always ask why, like, why right. is that? Like, why did that? Why did that happen? Now, some of them, you can't answer the question. You can't answer it because you don't have any enough information. So like, if I asked a question, so let's say there's a play that happens on the ice, a natural question would be like, well, why didn't he go there? Right. Well, you can't answer that question because you can't ask the player, like, why did you not go there? And even if you did, you know, you're not asking it on the spot. So what are the odds that he's going to remember it? And it, to the detail of being able to say like some of them, yes, you can ask them and they'll tell you and they understand every detail. They can tell you like the people that were in the front row of the actual game all the way around the rink. Like it's it, the details incredible. But you're not going to really get there, especially when you have 40 questions, like you're not going to be able to answer all those. But the more questions you ask, you're going to start to implicitly start to piece it together to see the conditions from which they made that decision. You could see a shoulder check that occurred earlier in the earlier in the sequence. 
a habit that they have, a certain player they play with, the handedness of a guy, the spacing of a guy, the stick pleasure, everything that they have is all like all these different things are occurring. That's what's led to this answer. And that, and that, and that's those are the, that's kind of the way that I piece it together. But I need to know, I have to know, right. I have to know these things. And then you just get on these tangents and off you go. And you're hoping that you can cluster them. And then once you get them in that cluster, then the real magic happens. But I used to be so isolated. I'd go, oh, I can't answer this question. Like, what am I doing? Like, this is terrible. Uh, and then I'd spend all of my time bogged down. I get frustrated and then that was it. And, and you, now I've stopped doing that and I've become infinitely better. You sound like that person out of the million tabs at the top of his computer browser. <laughs> yes, that is me actually. That's me. Yes, yeah, that's that me. is me. I, I just think that um, the game is so complex yet so simple at the same time. So anytime you have something like that, yeah, if you don't have questions, like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, and I, like I said, like I've poisoned you, Dan, now to view the game differently. And you're, you know, watching for certain things that are going to lead you to watch for other things that right. you never thought you would ever look for. And I, I love that. I think that that's great. And it deepens my level of understanding. And uh, like I said, the, 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 that's why I think your own research is so important because can you imagine going through a process like I just described what the richness of understanding you would have? Yeah. You would, you'd be, you would, you would have a richness beyond if I just gave it to you. I say, Oh, Hey, here's, here's something that I researched like, here, read this. Besides, do you think I'm going to, in my book, I wrote my book. The book is what? 300 and whatever, 60 pages. How many pages of a book do you think I could actually write? Like how many pages do you think we actually cut out to get to that? Like I probably could have wrote that book. That book could have been seven, eight, at least double, maybe triple. So how much of the book did I actually, like you're reading that book. That's right. one third of what I, or half of what I could have put in a book. You could probably sell that too. So that's my point. So <laughs> yeah. my point is, is yeah. that I've, so I'm giving you my research. Right. It's a third of what I could have written. So that's why you have to do your own research because you're going to go off a third of what I could have written. That makes no sense. You're only going to be the, even if you were an expert at everything that I've written in my book and you did everything to the nth degree, you will never achieve any more than a third or half of what I actually am capable of in writing just the content of that book. That's why you have to do your own research. Let's stick with the book there for a second. Is there any chapter that maybe went unwritten or you wish you would have included or maybe it was cut out or maybe, I don't know, like didn't, it didn't translate the pages for whatever reason or, or anything like that come to mind? There were several pages. There were several chapters that I wanted to write. Um, I want to write a lot about offensive hockey. Um, I, I really, I feel like this is my thing that I've, I've wanted to kind of talk about a lot, but in the context of where this book was at, like this book is about teaching. And I, I feel, I felt like I had to kind of draw a line in the sand and, and say like, what is this about? And I, I, I just think that as an industry, we have a lot of hockey people and we have a lot of coaches 
We have a lot of people that love the game. We don't have a lot of actual pure teachers, but I think we could have a lot more if they knew like this is a path and that this is something that they could focus on. So that's that, that to me was the number one thing to transfer because I feel like that's been a huge competitive advantage for me. I mean, just talking about research, like I could have gone in so many different directions about different research projects that I think are important. I could have gone through some really like really interesting hypotheticals on different types of research that people could do that I think would have been really fascinating. Um, but again, like, yeah, the re research is a major part of what I do, but wasn't as important. So, um, and then like this whole hockey IQ thing, like I, I, it's almost been a career mission of mine to like get it to the point where we are now, where it's like, you know, at least now there's an acceptance that it can be influenced. It's like, you know, I used to make the joke, like, um, that, you know, like somebody's God, we don't know who, but somebody's God is a ho huge hockey fan. And he just loves like hockey so much that they've decided that this kid is going to get hockey sense. Like, I think it's absurd. Like, uh, and yes, there's kids that learn differently and they process the game and pattern the game differently. But to say that, you know, they were all sitting up there and wherever that they sit and said, <laughs> you know what, this kid, I, I like hockey. I don't care. Like I like, I like watching intelligent hockey. So this kid, we need, we need someone who has great hockey sense. So Pat Kane, you're getting great hockey sense. Boom. I, I just know too much about it to know that um, that's just not how, this is not how it works. And, uh, and so I won't, I'm, I think we're past that now. And I think that there are more people that believe that more can be done here. So that would be an area that I would have loved to have gone down even more of a path. All right, last one for me. And thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. This has been fascinating. And, and I apologize if this is too personal, but I'm curious, like, what is your ultimate goal? Like at the end of the day, like, is it to have your name on the Stanley Cup? Is it to have as many of your clients' names on the Stanley Cup? Is it something like a legacy? Um, and again, sorry if that's too personal. No, it's, it's not too personal at all. Yeah, of course. I mean, right. I've been in now the NHL for, I guess it's going on nine years or so. And yeah, of course, I'd love to be part of a team that won a Stanley cup. I don't know that I need my name on it necessarily, but I, I want to be part of something um, for so long. The reason why uh, the NHL has really mattered to me recently is because I've wanted to be part of something that's bigger than myself. And for the longest time, I was such a lone ranger working like outside the system for lack of a better term. And I'm working with all these players and we went through a stretch where we had, you know, we had a Stanley cup champion, like eight or nine years in a row, someone from so that we directly work with had won the Stanley cup and just seeing that whole process, of course, you want to have something like that, that you feel part of, and you know, what kind of went into that. So that I would definitely love to, I would, I would love to have, but I, I think more like that's for sure something. Um, I, I also just really would like um, the work that I've done to mean something beyond what I've, what I've done with the players that people out there that are searching for things to research or searching for their own kind of way to start or are looking to get inspired uh, to do something could look at my story maybe. And if I shared it well, 
that maybe that might inspire them and, and that, you know, I feel like the hockey development industry is or player development industry is, is in its infancy of sorts. And so I'd like to, uh, I like to feel like I can influence that a bit. And so that was partly why the book was so important to me was uh, to kind of get some of that conversation started. So I guess that's, I guess that's really what I, what I, what I want uh, out of my time now is I'm at a stage where I was building everything for me naturally. And then now I want to build something that, is more lasting that extends way beyond me and that people might be able to refer back to work that I've done as a starting point for now breakthroughs all over uh, the game. That that's really important to me now. Excellent. One last one for you. And uh, I guess I got two more for you. One is uh, maybe a best story as a hockey dad yourself, just removing everything you've done just as, as a dad with a hockey player. And then one more technical being maybe some examples of your video to game transfers versus training to game transfers, where the differences happen and maybe some exciting uh, moments that you've had with that. So as it relates to being a dad and my dad moments with, with Ella, uh, one of my favorite things I used to do to her all the time, it's harder to do now um, is I used to find teams and especially spring teams that she could play on where she would have to go in the dressing room and she wouldn't know a single player and she wouldn't know anybody. She didn't know the coach. She didn't know any of the players. She didn't know nothing. And I would say, okay, here's the objective. Ella uh, by nature is a little bit uh, more like she needs to collect a lot of information, at least especially early on when she was young Uh, She wanted to kind of, she was that kid that would take her a couple games to kind of figure everything out. And then, then she would take off. And I'm like, Hey, tournaments, like if you wait till the third game, like you're going to have one more left, we're out of here. So you have to get started right away. Like that first game, you got to be ready. So when I put her on these teams, I would say to her, the coach doesn't know who you are. You're a defenseman. So if you don't know, if you don't know who the player is, do you're going to assume that you're going to be your number one defenseman or are you going to assume that you're the number six defenseman? You're probably going to assume when you write out the first lineup card that you're going to be the number six defenseman. So we're going to assume when you start walk in the room, you are going to be uh, the number six defenseman. And you have now all this time in these games, these however many games that we have that you're going to play this weekend, four or six, this situation that you're, you're in now, you need to pass three kids in the coach's mind. And she would ask me, well, how am I going to know? And you say, well, you're going to know by the pairings. You're also going to know by the situations that he puts you in different times in the game. Uh, that's going to tell you how far you've risen up the lineup. So your goal is to rise up three spots minimum. Maybe you can do more. Maybe you can do, maybe it's going to be everything you got just to raise those spots. So earning the trust of the coach, but not being conservative where, you know, you're only just get the puck, pass it and you're out trying to get involved, getting in, and asserting yourself in some way early. That was one of the things that I wanted to do, but put her in the most uncomfortable environment. Then I would say you have to make two friends. So when you walk in, you're going to put your bag down. You got to introduce yourself to whomever this, and I'm talking Ella's like eight, nine, 10 years old, like really young. Right. And I say, you got to make a friend. And, and I would do it of like, here's your bag. Here's your stick. Uh, you're in dressing room four. See you later. And she'd have to go and, 
figure out where's dressing room four and then cheapishly kind of, you know, like every kid would do like open the door and, and all it, and I knew it was hard on her. Right. And she had to go in. I, I said, then you got to go introduce and put your bag down, go introduce yourself to the coach. And uh, then when the kids come, you know, introduce yourself to your teammates and, and then see how that goes and then talk on the bench and try to, you know, praise the kids. Hey, that was a good play. Hey, great job. Hey, nice work. Just to kind of keep the conversation going so that over the course of the weekend, you might make a few friends. And it, it was that, that part of it I thought was super cool. And I had said to her, I'm like, this is an area that if you think you want to be a good hockey player, you're going to have to do this. Now I didn't tell her that, the hockey work, hockey works in a pyramid and the further you go up, the less kids are up near the top of the pyramid. So you're going to start running into the same kids over and over and over again. So now she's plays has played so long and played on that many different like situations that I've put her in that now, you know, there's very few dressing rooms that she's going to go in that she doesn't know somebody that it's her age group. She probably knows, somebody. And, and so that was the other side benefit. The more you put them in these different situations, the more friends they make, the more ways in which they connect. And at the end of the day, listen, Ella, you know, she's going to get an opportunity to play college hockey and then that's it. Like what, what else is there after that? I mean, you know, you, you hope that you put yourself in a situation for a national team, but that's like pie in the sky. Like you're hoping you can do that. You're building towards that, but what are you left with in the end? You're going to be left with an education and all these kids that you've met along the way. That's what you're really getting out of it. So I tried to start that off really early with her. And that was one of my most fun things when she would come in and she'd be like, dad, I know I jumped up in the lineup. I know. Did you see he put me out there in the last minute? Like I knew like that was huge. And she knew that that was all, oh, this is the coach showing trust in me or, Hey, I met this girl. This is my friend. Like we hung out all weekend. Like that to me, that's massive. That's confidence building. And it's, it's, uh, it's all, it can all be done organically. And I, I love that. What was the other question? Sorry. I, I love a good dad story. And that's awesome that you said that. Yeah. All right. So second part of the question was uh, maybe some examples of video to game transfer and then uh, training when, what do you need to do in person versus what can you kind of do more philosophically and not really need to waste the ice time or utilize the ice time as much? Um, like a, a lot of the video, I, I did a whole section, um, with Ella, I guess it would be three years ago where we were, I was trying to focus her on trying to get more pucks from her partner. And, um, her partner at the time was quick up, quick up, quick up, quick up. And there were so many times that uh, the right play would have been to, to use Ella. And so I would say to her, I would show her video of where she was unavailable. So I would show, I would say, Ella, you're frustrated that you're not getting pucks from your partner, but how much, how many pucks does your partner have that you are completely unavailable to get the puck? And if you put yourself in better positions, would that have an impact? So let's move in the right positions, work really hard to get into those positions to see if you'll get those pucks. And, and so we would do a ton of video review on just when her partner had the puck, where are you? And are you a viable option? Would you pass to you right now? That was kind of the way I, the way I phrased it, would, would you pass to you right now? 
are you in a good spot? Are you in, do you look like you want the puck? Are you presenting yourself for the puck? Those types of things are incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. The other uh, thing that you can do uh, on a, from video is to show how much time they actually have. One of the big, big comments that you get from players all the time is, oh, when they watch video, like if you ever watch video with a player, one of the number one things that they'll say is, oh, I didn't realize I had that much time. And so that's a light bulb for me to say, okay, you don't look at how much time you have here. You rush this play. Why did you rush this play? Oh, I thought that player was on me. Okay. So what's the root cause of that? Well, I didn't see early enough. I didn't shoulder check early enough. So I think that um, trying to create more ice awareness, you can do a lot of that through um, through video to training, video to game is you can do a ton of that. And it, it, and they can get a lot out of that very quickly. The other thing too, is like Monday morning quarterback options. Uh, you can do a ton out of that too, where they're looking at a, at a clip and you can say, okay, you made this play. I'm not saying it's a wrong play. What other plays could you make? And it's just to create an awareness of what these options might be. Uh, and I think you can do a lot with that. On ice, uh, on ice examples, like I, I think that uh, some of the easiest stuff that you can transfer very quickly is body position stuff. I think that that kind of stuff you can you can get uh, a training session. You can teach someone how to get better body positions, and the odds of them transferring that directly in a game is pretty high. Um, you you can do a really good job with that. Um, the other the other thing that you can do uh, really well uh, in terms of training to game is if it's not movement based, but it, it, in terms of like actually how the body is moving in in skating, that can take a little bit longer. But uh, some some things like uh, I've taught like from training to game, just like a crossover catch, for example. So like every time you catch a puck, I need you to catch it inside of a crossover, inside of a weight shift. And you can practice that um, over the course of an entire practice because how many times do you expect that the kid's going to get the puck? Probably a lot. Hopefully in your practice, they're going to get the puck a lot. So if that's the case, then now this is something that, you know, let's say they touch the puck 70 or 80 times. Well, if every time they catch it, they're in a crossover, you've got 80 reps on a crossover catch. The odds of them dropping that in is organically is pretty high. So if you don't have to teach something that's actual like physical movement of uh, skating mechanics of, uh, of sorts um, or shooting mechanics can be much more difficult um, to, you, you can take it, you can get it. It just takes a little bit longer, but some of these other things you can get, you can get pretty easily. Like even another one might be like puck protection uh, where you say, uh, hey, on a delay, instead of turning your back on the delay, let's open up under these conditions. Like if you can turn his feet, well, now you don't have to turn your back because you've already affected his feet. He can't check you. So the time when you turn your back is when the person you're anticipating the person to be able to stay with you. But if you can turn their feet now, when you, you can keep your uh, shoulders facing the most amount of ice, you don't have to, you can use a more of a pivot delay or a I call it a back cut. You could use a back cut. Now you can see the whole ice. That's something that you can influence. So by, by forcing or challenging the player 
to manage the space, use the dot line, manipulate the defender. Now, instead of turning, they could use this back cut. Now they have more vision. They can make plays like those types of things you can transfer like next day, real easy stuff, but it's invaluable, right? Like if you, you can make those adjustments very quickly, it could be as simple as one or two drills, you know, walk through as long as they understand what, why, and some of the manipulation parts. I mean, yeah, you could get that to transfer pretty quick. That's awesome. I was actually, I just came from a practice and I was doing um, basically backside presence and making sure we're working off the dot there on some low uh, area games. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that. That's awesome. So this, this was amazing. Thank you for your time. Um, at the end of every episode, we, we ask for uh, a book recommendation. If you have one, if, if not, no big deal. And then floor is yours, two minutes to talk about anything you want or anything you want to get out there. Um, so anybody who's really interested in teaching, uh, uh, one guy that I, I read a lot of is a guy by the name of Doug Lemoff. Um, L E M O V. He's a, uh, he's a kind of a world renowned, uh, educator. And, uh, he spends a lot of time talking about just teaching strategies, uh, for teachers. And, um, I, I don't, I don't read a lot of hot, like there's not a lot of hockey books to, to read unless you're uh, like bi- uh, autobiography type books. I'm not into drill books at all. So I don't read though. I don't watch or read those. Um, I prefer these types of types of things to read. I, I like, if I'm going to read something, I want to read something that is going to impact some, an area of my game, my own game, the way that I present myself. And so that's why I go down that path. Um, there's also, you know, obviously other sports can give you some different things. I'm not really an other sport, like trying to find the, the direct correlation in using another sport into hockey. I don't do that as often as others. Um, I think that they're good for some, you know, surface ideas and that, but it's up to you to kind of run with it on the hockey side. So I try not to dig too deep into that, but, uh, that's one that I, that I, that I think it would be, would be good. And then, I think if I had, uh, you know, kind of my two minute elevator speech to, to kind of finish this off, it would be more along the lines of trying to inspire, you know, you have, you have, you have two young people like yourself and Dan who are, you know, in the game, you're working with young players. My hope is, is that um, through me speaking out and speaking up now about different aspects that made uh, made me, uh, uh, gave me so many competitive advantages that uh, afforded me the opportunities that I have in my life now that I believe all that's available to all of you. The only limit is really your, uh, your willingness to, um, to research. Uh, and because my advantage always is that I just knew more. I just was better researched. I just knew more. I knew more about the athlete than he knew about himself. And I think that the more that I, and the, and I also was not afraid to, to do things a little different and try things and not, and not worry so much of like, well, what if it fails or what if it falls flat? I, I never really was afraid of that. And uh, I, I would get angry of course, when it happened, but I, I wasn't afraid to put myself in those situations. And the bigger growth curves that I ever had were those types of situations. So I couldn't wait to get on this particular podcast because I knew it's two young guys who want to do something in hockey, who are looking to be inspired, who are looking for ideas and 
uh, I call it like things to chase, rabbit holes to dive into. My hope is, is that throughout the course of this discussion and all the other ones that you've probably heard as I've gone through this tour is that there's something that resonates with you that you just, you won't, it won't let you go. Like you wake up in the middle of the night and it's in your mind that you chase that, chase it with everything you got and, uh, and, and without really much apology. And I think if you do that and you, that, that the rewards for that type of pursuit will be tremendous. And uh, that's what my hope is, is, and that's why I couldn't wait to come on here with you guys. Thanks, Daryl. I, I can say that uh, that has been the, the truest nature. I learned about you from a friend, Matt Dixon, back in 2010. So it's been a wonderful decade of following your stuff back when it was all about pro playmakers and an old, old website. So yes. it's, it's, it's taken me down a lot of rabbit holes and um, yeah, some nice expertise in some areas. So uh, again, thankful for what you've done so far. I always think that the, the mentor you ask a question, the mentor asks that second question that leads you down that rabbit hole, as you talked about earlier. Um, so you've been that and more. So thank you so much again for your time and coming on and being an inspiration. Awesome. All right. Thank you for tuning into the Hockey IQ podcast. We are Hockey's Arsenal, Greg Revac and Dan Ducart. Together, we've come together to create a platform and a community to expand our hockey intelligence, hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're very passionate about seeing this game played smarter and better and continue to develop itself uh, to the next level and staying on the cutting edge of things. So you can find us at Hockey's Arsenal on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're also at Hockey'sArsenal.com. Uh, from there, you can find some resources and some options to work with us. We're excited to continue this. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, and share. Uh, you can also join up for our newsletter as well, where we're going to tackle anything Hockey IQ related. So we're excited to have everyone here and continue to build. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, Hockey'sArsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch a Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.